0: tool has its own view. And at the end of the day, Affiliate is going to be one of your most cost efficient channels after email.
1: Okay, welcome back to The Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 66, and today's guest is Melissa Feemster, co-founder of Team Bespoke. Melissa is a longtime industry friend who's gone from working in a large advertising company, Rakuten, to having co-founded her own digital agency. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Melissa Feemster. Melissa is the co-founder of Team Bespoke, a digital consulting agency focused on monetization for brands, retailers, influencers, and media outlets. Before founding Team Bespoke, she was the GM of Rakuten Advertising and also was part of the founding team of two startups that were acquired within two years, one by Google. She's an advisor and angel investor. Can't wait to talk about the angel investing in multiple startups, serves on boards for Registria and DePauw, and holds an MBA from Wharton. Melissa, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Mark. Very happy to be here.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, doing this. I I know, uh, like many, you're very busy. Uh, We're recording this in uh, October uh, 2022. You must be getting ready for holiday.
0: That's exactly what we're talking with so many of our clients about it's been the past month kind of strategizing and now I mean the gift guides are being written. um, By a lot of the media houses and so we're getting everyone included in those as much as we can and just getting everyone mentally ready, it seems like you think about this all year. that This is going to be your biggest selling time and then when it arrives everyone's like oh my gosh it's actually here.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll we'll talk more about it when we get to Team Bespoke, but it it feels like each year um, holiday gets uh, earlier and earlier uh, in the year. What are you seeing for clients uh, about that?
0: You're exactly right. And Prime Day kicked it off really last week. So we're kind of seeing this deja vu of 2020 when we had a Prime Day in October then as well. And it really pulled up holiday shopping and the holiday season then. Um, And so as we're sort of doing forecasting for clients, we're really seeing that being the momentum that started and then now having a lot of friends and family deals you're seeing out there, especially in beauty over the next few weeks, and then you'll really start to see deals ramp up throughout November earlier and earlier.
1: Uh, as longtime listeners of the show, and as I, I mentioned to you when we uh, we connected here, you know I've been doing this for uh, almost two and a half years now, sixty plus shows, uh, and I'm very consistent. I am a creature of habit. I like to start the show with you know giving the audience some perspective on the guest, but letting them do that. And what we call it is the first story. So, what's the 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 kind of the quick version of the first story of Melissa Feemster?
0: My first story is that I've always been someone who learns how to make connections and new friends. That started because I moved quite a bit when I was growing up and sort of always had a new classmate and group of people to meet. And so I think that forced me to figure out how to walk into a room and have someone to sit down and have lunch with that day. And because of that, I got very comfortable doing that. And it served me, honestly, I think it's, It's the best thing that served me in my career is being able to walk into a room, meet new people, make connections, like tie those relationships together. And so I think it's especially in affiliate marketing, which is an area that's still based on relationships. It's not based on programmatic advertising and you really need to know who to call and really be able to pull on relationships. Honestly, like even, you know, you and I talking today is based on a client relationship from many years ago, seven or eight years ago. And so I really feel fortunate that I've been able to create new relationships and then maintain those over the years in a, honestly, in a really genuine way. I love meeting new people. I love learning about them. I love really knowing what makes them tick and how to potentially help them be more successful. Even if that doesn't mean... I'm a part of that success, but just in a way that really helps them forward their goals.
1: You know, there's an art of of networking and I do a lot of mentoring and I, I know you do too. And we'll we'll talk about that. And, you know, one of the things, you know, oftentimes they'll ask me, you know, these younger people earlier in their career, you know, like, what are the, you know, the few things that you really think have helped you in your career? And, you know, just being a good networker and maintaining those relationships, as as you mentioned, is really, really crucial. And not everybody has that perspective you know they uh, they feel like well when i need somebody i will reach out but it's isn't it don't you find that it's a heck of a lot easier to reach out to somebody that you've maintained that relationship with absolutely and
0: that's where i think in some ways you know you can learn parts of this but you have to kind of really enjoy it in order to make it genuine right because otherwise it does become like what you're saying where you just reach out and talk to people when you really sort of need something or want to ask a question or something. But when you truly do enjoy knowing people, I think that that's what makes it easy because you're not having to work at it. And it makes it really genuine to be able to keep in touch with people over the years. And that's what i it really gets me up every day and gives me energy. And that's how I thrive.
1: You know, one of the questions uh, that I, I often hear, geez, I went to undergraduate. I'm, I'm, I am I'm, have my my idea of what I want my career to be. I'm trying to decide whether I go to graduate school or not, perhaps, you know, doing it by giving up a job and, and going full time. And there's the opportunity cost. You, you went to graduate school. What went through your mind when you were making that decision?
0: It was different back then in some ways than it is now. Um, what went through my mind back then was, I really would like to further my education, have a challenge, and at that time I thought I might want to become a consumer packaged goods marketer and to do that you needed an MBA in marketing. Um, And so, at the time I was working in an advertising agency that did direct response television and I loved it, but I really thought that I might want to make a career change and I also Really had always wanted to go back to school as well. Um, my parents both have master's degrees, and so it was sort of something in my family that I think was treasured and important. Um, so, I at that time, you had to really wait four or five years after undergrad. I went to business school between 2002 and 2004. So, you know, it's been quite some time now, and things are different. Um, but when I applied to Wharton, my objective at that time was to get an internship at a consumer packaged goods company and then do that job when I got out.
1: And where did you grow up?
0: I grew up moving a lot. So I grew up in the Midwest, a few places. And then I ended up actually doing high school in Dallas, Texas. And that's where my parents have stayed.
1: Okay. And, you know, you you had, you know, uh, some roles out of, uh, out of school, but, you know, most affordable, uh, formidable period was with LinkShare. So uh, maybe explain what LinkShare is, how it evolved into Rakuten. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in, you know, what you were doing there, but also, um, you know, working for a company like LinkShare that then got acquired um, and how that was to be working there during that time.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Well, when I went to Wharton, I did my summer internship at Campbell Soup Company, and I learned that I did not want to become a part of the consumer packaged goods industry, which was an amazing lesson to learn in just three months rather than, you know, kind of going out and finding a job. So when I graduated from Wharton, again, it was different then. There wasn't this wonderful entrepreneurship program there is now. You know, Warby Parker hadn't been founded. Like it was very much still structured into you're an investment banker. Maybe you'd go into a hedge fund, which was like seemed new then. Or, you know, you sort of go out on your own. So I went out on my own to to really find my job. And I got lucky that LinkShare accepted my application. I, I applied to be an analyst at LinkShare. And Leanne Dietrich pulled my resume out of there and said, we really would like you to come and start a client services team here in the Chicago office. We've really been much more focused on kind of creating client service from scratch, and we need someone to create this department, create an industry leader out of a services team, and we would love for you to start that. So I got really lucky. And at that time, you're right, it was Linkshare. And within a year, it it was acquired by Rakuten. Um, Linkshare was a privately owned family business founded by a brother and sister, Stephen and Heidi Messer. They were fantastic visionaries in figuring out early online e-commerce. And Stephen had a real penchant for analytics and he um, also had formed a joint venture with a company in Japan. So he had really gotten to know the Japanese e-commerce market and through that got to know Hiroshi Mikitani, um, who is the founder of Rakuten. And so we, Linkshare at that time was the first acquisition made by Mikitani-san outside of Japan. So we had done a number of different acquisitions over his, his career, but we were the first one in the United States and first one in another country. So it was really formative, I think, in my career development to be a part of the team that evolved in this acquisition. And I feel really, really lucky that I got to see that from scratch.
1: And, and Linkshare's business model was was what?
0: Entirely affiliate marketing focused at that time. And, you know, back in 2004, 2005, um, the acquisition was completed in 2005. You know, pretty niche, yeah. very, very
1: new. You know, we we all tend to work with you know lots of business partners. Um, you know, you and I have a a, a few mutual friends uh, actually in the industry. One of them being Adam Weiss, and I was asking you a little bit about you know working with Adam, and you know you had a very interesting take on it about how uh, business relationships you know you can be made better by people around you. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, Adam preceded me at Linkshare, but quickly we started working together and sort of leading two sides of the business. And eventually our careers would progress to where we were each sharing the job of leading the business as general managers. And when he and I started working together, he gave me a book called Working Together. And it's actually written by Michael Eisner. And we lived the philosophy of this book, I think. And I thought it was such a neat book. It It profiles a number of duos who manage companies. And the premise is what you could each accomplish individually is actually a greater outcome when you work together and you truly create a vision of something together. And I didn't know it at the time, but I really love the opportunity to not just work on my own, but work with other people. And so now I have co-founders at Team Bespoke who I really, really treasure. And I, I think I create better outcomes when I am working with a team member who we can work in lockstep and really create something great together.
1: Yeah, uh, you know it's funny you know, when you you go through interviews. You know they ask you the, you know the the cliche question: Do you prefer to work as you're you know uh, uh, independently, or do you prefer to work you know collaboratively? And you know I think everybody the answer that they're looking for is that sure I love working collaboratively, but um, you know not everybody is is uh, cut out to be working that way and to be effective. That's
0: true. It takes a lot of communication to do it too. You know it's the same in like. A marriage or other relationships you have with, you know, other people. If you're not on the same page, then everybody on the team knows it real fast. And so um, I'm really proud that I have had a lot of examples in my career, really working closely with people and creating great outcomes because I really enjoy
1: it. We, we talk about, you know, working and, and guiding uh, people. so And I mentioned my mentoring that, you know, mostly that I do through XRC labs, but, you know, do some other independent uh, mentoring, which I, I find really rewarding. I, I always find that I not only do I hope I'm imparting some wisdom, but I always learn something. Um, you know, oftentimes these are people early in their career, they're, they're developing and building. Um, so I, I know you do some uh, mentoring as well. Uh, and I think you mentioned it was Techstars. Tell us about that.
0: Yes, I feel very fortunate to get to do that. So it's part of Techstars Chicago. The way the Techstars program works is they um, accept a cohort of startups that they invest in, and then sort of put them through a training period of 12 weeks. And so as part of that, they have two weeks of intensive mentorship where they meet with all different types of people. And I feel really fortunate to be included in it. I am, I am not, you know, the investment banker, typical VC material, you know, very much a small investor, but I don't think there's a lot of folks with marketing and especially direct marketing expertise that are part of the pool of mentors. And so I feel like we always have really good conversations. And I've been fortunate enough to sort of continue on with relationships of like unofficial advisor and mentor with some of the folks I've met along the way. Um, And then also just, again, through networking, been connected to other people who say, oh, you should, you know, you should talk to Melissa for this this or that. But that Techstars program brings together a lot of special people. And it's one of the things I'm just most grateful to be a part of. Because like you say, you learn so much every time. Like they think, that you're, they're learning so much from you and you are just feeling like you're learning more from
1: them. Yeah. Good stuff. You were uh, a part of a, of a business called eight. Interesting story, how you got there. Uh, so tell us what eight is, uh, or was and in, in your role there and you know, how you got there.
0: Absolutely. I had a really lovely career at Rakuten and I was very, very happy. I had met a lot of the world's best retailers and helped with a portion of their online sales for a lot of years from Macy's to Walmart and Estee Lauder and many more. And I love my job. And then I got a call one day from our mutual friend, Bernadine Wu. And she said, I have someone I want you to meet. And I had a bunch of meetings in New York. And so I went and met with him. Um, This gentleman's name is Michael Klein. He is a serial entrepreneur. He founded Fandango many years ago and then um, founded a series of other companies since then. And he had this idea to start Eight, which was uh, an incubator where previously he had created companies, funded them, and found a CEO to, in this case, come up with an idea, and he was going to be the CEO, and he was building the team to execute that alongside him. And so uh, he had already hired the gentleman who would lead the artificial visual intelligence for the company, the gentleman who would really set up the tech stack, and he was on the hunt for the person who could build out the retail relationships. So Bernardine introduced him to me. I had a one-hour meeting, and at the end of that, he said, "How much money do you make? I want to hire you." (laughs) And I
1: three million a year.
0: (laughs) I felt like I was in the twilight zone. I mean, I didn't, you know, I. I was like, is this man real? Is this really an opportunity? And I said, boy, I'm happy at my job at Rakuten. So thankfully we continued the conversation beyond that one meeting. And I took that leap into the startup world. And I'm so thankful I did because I was able to take sort of that big company um, experience that I gained and get to be a part of the startup world truly and incubate two businesses from the ground up. It was an insane two years of experience. And I I'm really grateful because it set me on the trajectory of feeling confident and I enough that I could own my own business one day.
1: And did you go directly from eight uh, to start Team Bespoke?
0: There was a little interim in there. So while those acquisitions were happening, um, we were fortunate enough to have one of the companies we started get acquired by Google and as Not many people talk about, you know, you get these glamorous headlines about, you know, being acquired or whatever. But when you're in the midst of having a number of very prestigious companies bidding on your business and, you know, whether or not they want part of the executive team to go or who they want to go or what assets they'll be, you know, acquiring, it's a long process. And my role in being part of new business and signing up new retailers, I really had to get quiet for a really long time. It was a very weird thing to happen to me because I love working. I love being busy. And all of a sudden, I couldn't tell any of my you know, network contacts that I was potentially going to be looking for a new job. You have to be entirely quiet, right? So it was an interesting experience, actually, of course, very grateful for the outcome. But through that, I sort of quietly started to consult with some very good friends. And I was beamster consulting for a little while. When the acquisition closed, then I kind of was a little bit more public. And then quickly became lonely, honestly. And, you know, I had the fortunate meetings with my co-founders where they were sort of thinking about doing something similar. And we hatched the idea for Team Bespoke then and and gradually came together.
1: All right. Well we're going to talk about Team Bespoke. But before we do that, um, we, you know, we both talked about angel investing. So for those that might be listening, you know, how would you describe what angel investing is?
0: I think it's anytime you're taking a very early chance on a founder. And funding it in some way. And I don't think there's really a check limit I would put on that. I don't know if you would, but I feel like it could be kind of any amount and usually fairly small, not at a sort of, you know, VC level in any way, but one where you have enough meetings with the founder that you feel like you'd really like to help them get started in both a monetary and usually also kind of an advising
1: yeah, it's interesting you use the the term founder because you know at least for me, you know you're making a bet on the founder. Um you know you've you've got and be interested, you know your perspective for me, you know i've I've got to understand or at least have some reasonable understanding of the business that they're trying to be in. But for me, I've made my decisions mostly on the founder. How about you?
0: I agree. Yes. um definitely based on that. And a little bit also based on the business model, and maybe just, do you believe there is you know, potentially a, a path to profitability there? I'm a little bit less of a, I'm, I'm pretty conservative, I guess I would say, from a risk aversion standpoint. And so I'm probably not the girl that's going to be betting on something that I completely don't understand, um, but one where I really do feel like there's a path to profitability in the future as well.
1: Well, you can't be that conservative if you're doing angel investing, because that is <laughs> not for the faint of heart. That's for sure.
0: I look at it as once the money's gone, it's it's gone. I don't I don't ever feel like I'm going to get it back. I don't know if you
1: think about
0: that, but I sort of feel like it's going to be lucky.
1: Yeah, and that's absolutely the way you know that uh, I think you have to do it. And you know, I was lucky. I I had one. Um, it was beginner's luck that you know did really well, and you know, so that gave me. I was going to say it gave me more confidence. I don't think it gave me more confidence. It just gave me some cash to be able to play with and start doing you know, some other things. Um, so of, of the many things that I do, it's one of my most favorite. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. All right. So let's talk about team bespoke. Um, I talked a little bit about it at the top, but how do you describe what it is and the problems that you are helping people solve?
0: Sure. We like to teach people the affiliate marketing business. So that might be on the advertiser side of the house. It might be on the publisher side of the house. It could be in a consulting role. It could be helping people start their first affiliate program they've ever had. And nowadays the word affiliate encompasses a lot more than it used to. So it's not just deal sites and things like that will help you start an influencer program, will help you work with different media houses alongside PR or in place of a PR agency. Um, So really, it's all about getting the word out about your brand in a way that's done through partnerships, um, where that partner is paid a commission when they make a sale.
1: And if you took um, you know, one or two clients that you know you're most proud of, either you know today or perhaps uh, you, you worked with them in the past. When they came to you, what was their? You know, wh- what are these folks coming to you with? What problem are they saying, Melissa? We can't figure this out ourselves.
0: Usually, it's a manpower thing in some ways. Like sometimes they they do they really know the concept of what they want to accomplish. They want influencers to be seated with their product and be talking about them and be able to be either have a coupon code that's tracked or be able to have their links tracked and um, be compensated for when they talk about the brand they come to us and say we know that we want to get more coverage in vogue and the knot and potentially on something like the wire cutter and how can you help us get placements there and they say we also know we probably need to have a traditional affiliate program. Um, and so we know you can help us with that. So it's really, as I mentioned before, affiliate remains one of the very few e-commerce channels that remains very work intensive. It takes people, it takes relationships, it takes knowing who to call. And there just isn't a programmatic way to set a budget for the day and walk away from it. Where there, you know, that's the case with many other channels. So with affiliate, they need people who have the connections. You know, we have are fortunate enough to to really know the folks at the media houses. We can really help them leverage some of the tried and true tools out there for influencer marketing. And we know who to call in order to kind of get them launched in a lot of places. So that's the problem we really help them solve is we help them not take up their brain power in getting those things done. And we'll both design the strategy and execute for them and take care of it for them um, to get them either launched or Lots of times they come to us and say, I have this thing. I have a login to share a sale and I have no idea what to do with it. And we say, just hand that over and we'll get you going from there.
1: You know, the, the affiliate marketing you know, kind of space, you know, has tended to be highly promotional. And, you know, I, I get a lot of, um, you know, clients or businesses that I'm involved with, they say, geez, you know, I really wanna be able to drive traffic to my site, but without the the heavy promotion that that channel tends to be. W- where are the areas that you can be helpful to a potential client and, and have affiliate marketing be more about content and uh, influencers and not have it just be about, you know, giving them a discount?
0: Absolutely. We have a couple of clients who do exactly that. So Alex Mill is one example. Lunya is another um, of brands who really are not promotional and have leveraged this channel to really concentrate on being a part of um, recommendation articles in those content sites, like you said, and then also doing a lot with influencers in the channel. What I will say, though, is that the brand needs to sort of tie that into the, you know, sort of 360 efforts they're making. So you can't do a promotion one place and then expect it not to sort of leak through. But, you know, someone like an Alex Mill will have on their Black Friday um, pop up. There will there will not be a discount there. So they're a brand that truly sort of lives through that fact that. They don't do discounting and um, there really are deals to be found. And in that case, then we can blow the channel out with a lot of messaging that really talks about new releases, um, talks about the mission of the brand. You know, a lot of brands these days have really um, lovely missions that they're tied into that we can really get some coverage on. So, for example, Scotch Porter is a brand of ours that we work with that's a Black owned business. And so that gives us a lot of sort of talking points in order to really push. Um, the ability for people to shop through a Black-owned business um, and not have to focus on discounting as much.
1: You know, one of the things, you know, you're helping businesses, but you are a business as well, right? Um, And you've mentioned that, you know, you've been somewhat deliberate in growing the business so that you could be, you know, controlled and, and providing the appropriate service. So how does that all, you know, play into your mind of how big do we want to be in this business that we've created?
0: It's a really fortunate position to be in, but it's something you don't hear a lot of podcasts or other things talk about, which is we've actually really had to grow very carefully and we could have grown a lot more quickly than we have. And so we've had to be a little bit deliberate, like you said, on how many clients we take on and how quickly we sort of add new services and new team members So in the three and a half, almost four years of being in business, we've really sort of added team members slowly and added clients slowly. And honestly, I've I've had this very strange conversation with people where I've had to say, I would love to help you. And I'll have an intro call with you and I will send you off with a lot of advice, but I actually can't have you hire me right now because we're full. And I've really wrestled with how quickly to grow, how much risk to take on, how we want to structure the business. In a way that helps me and my co-founders also sleep at night well um, so that we know that we're building a sustainable business for the long
1: term. The the partnerships that you help your clients work, you know, through, you know, one of the, the challenges in in affiliate marketing is determining incrementality and and whether or not it's truly valuable to the business. So how are you helping them think through that?
0: It depends on the client and the data that they have access to. So, you know, in our case, we work with a lot of startups who are either spinning this up for the first time alongside all of their marketing efforts, like they're truly launching the brand and we are launching the same day as them. And so in that case, incrementality doesn't come along for a little while longer in the life cycle. Um, for more established brands, it's absolutely a discussion and it kind of depends on how they look at things internally. Is it just new customers that they look at from an incrementality standpoint? Are they looking at lifetime value? How are they kind of pulling in the data? What tools are they using? So we'll kind of plug in with each client. We have a couple that just um, started using a tool called North Beam, So we've been sort of working with them to get plugged into that. Every tool has its own view. And at the end of the day, affiliate is going to be one of your most cost-efficient channels after email from a cost perspective. And you can incre- you can sort of do the incrementality analysis and analysis paralysis as much as you want, but it's real hard to make this channel look unprofitable on its own. What's more often done is that they need this channel to cover up the sins of some other experiments that are going on. And that's fine too, you know, but... Um, I do think that at the end of the day, it's a a very incremental channel and one that should always be really delivering to the bottom line in a profitable way.
1: Uh, interesting. I'm I'm working with some folks and some businesses that are all bought into, you know, we need to have a loyal and affiliate program, but you know, that's six percent commission and perhaps another two points of of platform fee, you know, if the incrementality is only 50%, you know, you're now talking at a 16%, you know, cost of marketing. If the incrementality is only a third, you know, it ratchets it up from there. So, you've got to be bought into the fact that it is, in fact, a reasonably incremental channel.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, it's my, it's my business. I believe
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I would expect that, uh, that you would. Each business um, is being challenged, you know, quite a bit uh, these days with rising costs um, whether it be from Google or meta from or other channels, there's more and more privacy and, and targeting challenges out there. So when, when you give counsel to your clients, you know, how are you helping them through this, Uh, these types of issues?
0: You know, it has been a challenge for almost every one of our clients. And honestly, what I love to have them concentrate on is what they can control. Um, And especially if it is in in this channel, we can always probably invest a little bit more and, and find ways to create both top of funnel demand as well as bottom of funnel demand. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think what we're all struggling with, I, I went to the lead conference in July, which was you know a really amazing conference. But the theme that you kept hearing throughout is exactly what you're saying. there's there's just no replacement for the discovery that Facebook allowed for brands at the level of effort and the cost. Um, and so there's really nothing out there right now. I don't think that's you know, the plug and play, and it's what we're all looking for. So I won't say that I have the silver bullet, but what I can do is help them be very strategic with this partnerships channel and very cost efficient with increasing spend here where we can. And it's not going to make up that gap, though. There isn't anything that is that I've found yet. I don't know about you.
1: No, I haven't. Uh, I was hoping you were going to be, uh, you know, give <laughs> give everybody that's listening a uh, silver bullet uh, here, but I, I guess not.
0: Right before holiday, my Christmas present.
1: Yeah, on. there you go. And, you know, we- <laughs> We talked a little bit about holiday at the top, but let's go back again. So what are you seeing? You know, the, the economy seems to have, you know, slowed down a bit. I mean, and the the technical issues, you know, it says technically that we're in a recession, but, you know, nobody is willing to call it that. Uh, consumer shopping uh, has slowed down a bit, but inflation is still, you know, running very hot. Uh, so what are your, your clients seeing from an economic perspective?
0: I think we've seen... Um sort of everybody talking about it, but haven't seen sort of that actual slowdown necessarily hit. You know, you look back at the pandemic and it was unprecedented growth for e-commerce companies. Some were growing, you know, minimum 30% year over year, many growing 50, many growing 70 to 100% year over year. And that obviously has slowed in 2022 and become a little bit more, what I would say, rational or or normal, if we're allowed to use that word. And so most clients are looking at, you know, overall growth somewhere between 5 and 25%, I would say this year. And as they look out on 2023, I think a lot of them are forecasting a little more realistically in like the 5 to 15% growth level next year over this. For holiday, I think it's still that people are very hopeful that it will be a great holiday season. What's been interesting is I I have seen the beginning of October hit a little bit of a wall, and so it's been a, it's been very sort of surprising, I would say, from a from a traffic and spend perspective. The um, early feedback I'm getting from Prime Day is that it was very good but it was not as good as July. Now, whether or not I continue to hear that, is we're very early, obviously we're four days out, four business days out from that having ended. So I haven't talked to that many people, but that's sort of the theme I'm hearing. It was more quickly planned. So sites you know, such as a Buzzfeed or you know, Vogue or anyone else didn't have as much time to write as much content and as many articles about it to earn as much, right? So I think just the theme I'm hearing, um, not specifically from those sites, just overall from those types of sites, is that they didn't have quite as much time, but it was still strong and it was a great kickoff to holiday. But I think we're going to need a lot of discounting in order to get people to buy this holiday. And I have some clients who are hesitant and I'm like, you know, the 20, 25 percent is is not going to cut it for the cyber Monday offer this year. And it needs to be at least 30 and anyone who's willing to do 40 and 50 is actually going to see a lot of results.
1: Yeah. I feel that, um, quite a few calls from people asking me about business, you know, the last two weeks of September into October, um, definitely feeling like they've hit a wall. Um, you know, I think the week before, uh, prime Days was uh, softer than they would have expected as well. You know, trying to you know rationalize that maybe it was uh, people waiting to spend, um, save dollars for uh, for Prime Days, but uh, you know we shall see. <laughs> But we're getting to the end of our time together. Uh, really good stuff here. Thank you for sharing. Um, uh, we do this two-minute drill at the end of the show. Uh, seven questions, one-word answer. Nobody ever sticks to one word. But we're going <laughs> to see what you can do, Melissa. You ready? Yes. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? SoulCycle. Favorite app on your phone?
0: Spotify.
1: Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from?
0: Arendtia Beauty. And I will I will expound beyond <laughs> on this one because it was a test purchase. Arendtia launched last week, and it's a company that is started by a very dear friend of mine. And so when the announcement went out that the site was live, I wanted to support him and make sure that whole Shopify... Um, by process worked, and I got my package in three days, and it's beautiful. So,
1: okay, well, right. <laughs> we'll have to take a look at that one. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were
0: the taxes across states for employees in my business. I am forever receiving a surprise notice from the state of Ohio or Washington that I need to file some report I didn't even know existed. And so, that's something that as a small business owner, forever challenges me, and I can't figure out how to learn enough more about it.
1: That's why there are CPAs and tax accountants out there, and you leverage the expertise uh, spoken as a former CPA. The charitable organization that you're most passionate about.
0: It's called PEO. It's the Philanthropic Educational Organization for Women. We support, I've been a part of it since I was 21 years old and my mom is in it as well. And we support women's education. We give scholarships and grants to women at all stages of their educational career.
1: Very nice. If you had one superpower, what would it be?
0: I'm going to decline the superpower.
1: Okay. No superpowers for Melissa. Other than (laughs) family, what's your most prized possession?
0: Team bespoke. (laughs)
1: Okay, there you go. Where can people reach out to you on social media?
0: LinkedIn is really best for me. And then Team Bespoke has a great presence on Instagram. So it's team.bespoke on Instagram. So follow us there.
1: Okay. Well, look, uh, this was a lot of fun. It's nice to see you. Uh, even though this is a podcast where we put out audio, uh, we are uh, doing this on video, so we can see the guest and the guest can see me. This was a lot of fun, and, and like I said, nice to see you. I'm glad that you're doing so well. Uh, you're always so happy uh, every time I've I've chatted with you. You've uh, got a big smile, and uh, so I'm glad that things are going well for you.
0: Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it, and it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me as a guest.
1: That's it. Today's game ball goes to Melissa Feemster for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, if you're a new business owner, one of your many challenges will be to see how quickly you can and want to grow. So often, we think that the measure of success of a business is based on how big you are. Melissa calls out that Team Bespoke has risen to a size that the co-founders are comfortable with. They believe they serve their clients well. It keeps the internal team busy and providing a quality service to their clients. Number two, Melissa references a book called Working Together written by Michael Eisner. It focuses on duos who manage companies and describes how they're effective working together. They make each other better. It's the classic one plus one equals three. Give some thought to how you can make others around you better at what they do, but also find that someone who can make you better. Number three, there's no replacement for establishing and maintaining relationships in a genuine way. You cannot expect to be able to reach out to people only when you need something. Sometimes it's just about saying hello and seeing how that other person is doing, their family, their work. Just say hello. In the long run, when the time comes that you do need some help, you'll be able to feel much more comfortable connecting with these people. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.